welcome again to the Ann Lauren podcast series. Today, I'll present the third of a series of podcasts that are more lecture-like and designed to help you understand how to think about drugs in general and then specifically ASOs that we may administer to patients with ultra-rare diseases. In the previous podcast in this lecture series, I introduced receptors, receptor biology, I introduced drugs as chemicals, and spent quite a bit of time discussing how pharmacologists think about drugs. And hopefully that provides then the basis to get into the next level of complexity. Today, we're going to then build on that basic understanding and discuss the several platforms for drug discovery that are available today. And then I'll wrap up by discussing how each of those platforms might or might not be of value to patients with diseases caused by ultra-rare mutations. So there are several platforms or technologies for drug discovery today. Three are validated and can be used relatively broadly. The granddaddy of all of them, of course, in the basis of the industry, and still the basis of almost all the drugs that you routinely take, are small molecule drugs. And these small molecule drugs, remember, chemists tend to define small molecule drugs as less than 500 Dalton, can be very broadly used. Another validated technology that can be used not nearly as broadly as small molecules, but pretty broadly, are monoclonal antibodies. And then RNA targeting drugs, such as ASOs, are now validated, and it's very clear that they can be used quite broadly as well. Gene therapy is validated certainly, at least in part, but for reasons I'm going to explain is still very narrowly useful. And RNA therapy, such as the vaccines for COVID-19, is just another form of gene therapy-like treatment that today is, of course, much more immature and therefore much more limited than even traditional gene therapy. Okay, so let's now focus on small molecules. Small molecules are considered to be small because they are smaller than 500 dollars. And for the better part of the 20th century, they were the only type of drug that were used. And those small molecules have almost always been designed to bind to protein receptors. This technology, as I said, is the source of most of the drugs that you take every day. And the technology is still the center of the drug discovery universe. I don't think it's going to ever come to the place where it's fully replaced. And as I said, chemists define small molecule drugs as being smaller than 500 Daltons. Now, if you think about drugs as containing information, we build in certain kinds of information into a drug that we hope translates to a therapeutic benefit. You can easily understand why small molecule drugs are so nonspecific. They're just too small to have much information. And that's certainly the case. Furthermore, they're typically designed to bind to proteins, which are incredibly complex molecules that we still don't fully understand as well as we'd like. So you'll remember then that the language of proteins is this complex 20-character language that we call the amino acid language. And you can think of it as about as complex as English. And proteins are very large. They are comprised of hundreds to thousands of amino acids, and sometimes they form complexes with you know, several units of themselves or other proteins, which can be hundreds of thousands and millions of Daltons big. And therefore, they create tremendously complex three-dimensional patterns. And with the small molecule drug, despite more than 120 years of effort, we still do not understand enough 
to predict exactly to what proteins a small molecule will bind and what other materials it may bind to, or where in a particular protein it will bind. And because the small molecule has very, very limited information, they are by definition not specific. No matter how you would like to believe they are specific, they're generally non-specific. And here's how you can tell. We study them in animals. So we're hoping that the small molecule drug we use will be specific to cause a specific effect on, you know, that's causing a disease. And yet we know that we can see effects in animals that are totally different from human beings and in various models that we use. So they're really not very specific. I'll say once again, that we don't understand the rules sufficiently of how small molecules interact with proteins to predict the effects that we're going to see. And that making discovering small molecules extremely complex, challenging, and fraught with many, many failures. And this whole set of lack of specificity sort of comments is best captured by a very traditional statement by drug discoverers and medicinal chemists, and that is change methyl, change the drug. So a methyl is a tiny little bit of a chemical. And what that means then is if we make even the tiniest change in a small molecule, you're likely not able to predict how that drug will behave. Okay. Well, that means that if the tiniest change in a molecule gives you a totally different set of behaviors, then we really don't learn from our successes and failures in small molecules in any way that we can really apply to the next small molecule drug that we want to make. That's still sadly true. And since we can't predict how the chemical will behave, and we don't understand the rules by which small molecule drugs interact with proteins, we have lots of failures. It's both costly, time-consuming, and fraught with failure, the process of discovering and developing small molecule drugs. And in fact, 99% of all the small molecule drugs fail before they ever get to the market. And many of them fail only after hundreds of millions or billions of dollars are invested. And since the few successes have to pay for all the failures, all those failures get amortized over a very small fraction of small molecule drugs that make it. And that, of course, makes small molecule drug discovery and small molecule drugs often very costly and progressively more costly. So the inefficiency of the process of drug discovery and development then is truly of small molecules is the consequence of the nature of the drug, the complexity of the proteins, and the fact that we do not understand the rules that determine what happens in the game that we're playing when we administer that drug. And it leads to many and many of the woes that the pharmaceutical industry has had. And recognizing that this technology is very inefficient has led to others investing in finding new and better ways to use drugs that will be more specific or create drugs that are more specific and maybe more efficiently discovered and developed. And that brings me to monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies are proteins, and they're not the first proteins to be used therapeutically. In fact, replacement protein therapy has been used now for about 100 years. And the granddaddy of all replacement protein therapies is, of course, insulin. And the value of insulin to patients with diabetes is just hard to exaggerate. But antibody technology is very different from replacement protein therapy and more broadly and effectively applicable. We all make antibodies constant. One of the things that our immune system does for us And we make 
antibodies when we encounter foreign chemicals. And chemicals that then cause antibodies to be made are called antigens. So an antigen is a chemical that can cause antibodies to be made. I guess that's a bit circular, but that's the way we describe it. Now, when an antigen stimulates the making of an antibody in the body, it creates a set of new cells that make that antibody. And those antibodies are typically uh, polyclonal. That is, they they will bind to different sites on that, that protein or that chemical. And that is a great process that we can use, but it's very unique to each individual. And so monoclonals were a major step forward because monoclonals are likely to be much more specific than a polyclonal antibody and much more specific than a small molecule drug could ever be. So most of the time, targets from the monoclonal antibodies, because they're big proteins, must be expressed on the surface of cells. Not always, but most of the time. And so, of course, there are a lot of important targets that are on the surface of cells, and so monoclonal antibodies can, can be used primarily for those targets. And monoclonal antibodies have made incredible differences in the treatment of cancer, and then a lot of autoimmune diseases like arthritis, Crohn's disease, and other diseases. Now, the first monoclonal antibodies were reported in about 1972. And in fact, there was a monoclonal antibody that was approved. And then after that, the real work and the real misery began. And people realized that there were a lot of problems that had to be solved. And so the process that led to the modern monoclonal antibody capability took about 30 years, about 30 companies, and about $30 billion. And lots and lots of great academic and industrial scientists work. 30 years, $30 billion, lots of failures, and some catastrophes to learn how to make and use and validate the value of monoclonal antibodies. The next technology to yield then broadly applicable drug discovery abilities is RNA-targeted drugs like ASOs. The idea of treating an RNA like a large series of drug receptors and use then genetic information to create little tiny bits of genetic information that would take advantage of the genetic code directly to bind to a particular site in a target RNA was first initiated in the late 1970s in a paper by Zamek, Sneck, and Stevens. And it was a very, very naive suggestion. They said, hey, why don't we make an oligonucleotide? Remember, poly means many, oligo means a few. So you're going to string a few of these nucleotides together in a way that produces a genetic bit of information and use that to bind to a particular site in an RNA. And of course, the, the means by which that happens is well understood. And that's Watson-Crick hybridization that, you know, was first sorted out in the 50s. So they coined then the term antisense. And why antisense? And what in the world does that mean? Well, remember that your genes are read left to right, just like a book. If you read left to right, the information in your gene makes a lot of sense. But there's another strand of DNA that's in the opposite direction. That's called the antisense strand. And it's called antisense because if you were to try to read it, it would make no sense. And it's in the reverse direction of the sense strand. So the idea was that these would behave like the antisense strand in a DNA or an RNA and bind to a target RNA and then do something. And that's why we ended up with the term antisense, and that's often shortened to ASOs.
So that was the concept. And remember that genetic information then is very simple, just four-letter code. We understand the rules. So in principle, that would make a drug discovery technology that could make more specific drugs and be much more efficient. So once again, an oligonucleotide means a few nucleotides, the building blocks of DNA or RNA that are put together to create a tiny little bit of genetic information. And the genetic code is wonderfully simple. So we're really just dealing with Morse code kind of complexities. And knowing the rules then means that we can play the game better. Very, very, very simple. And in fact, just based on the rules that were created by Watson and Crick in their studies, you can calculate how many nucleotides in a particular row row of a particular sequence you would need to specifically interact with a single site in the sea of RNA that's present in the cell. And that was done. And it was calculated to be about 16 to 20 nucleotides. And it turns out that's exactly right. So it really is that simple. Well, the concept was considered interesting, but impossible to reduce to practice until the late 1980s, when several companies, including Ionis, were formed to try to make the idea work. So why was it considered so unlikely to work? Well, because natural phosphate-linked oligonucleotides are rapidly degraded by the systems that the cell uses to degrade nucleic acids. This meant that we had to invent an entirely new chemical discipline, and that was the medicinal chemistry of oligonucleotides. And then, even if we could do that, and you know, everyone thought maybe somebody could, in a few decades, invent a chemistry for making drug-like oligonucleotides. The general belief, based on what was known at the time, was they'd never enter cells, and they have to enter cells if they're going to interact with the target RNAs. And so even if you could make it, you couldn't use them. And so it was greeted with a great deal of skepticism. And that was justified. It's always important to be skeptical. And then the other problem that was considered just not solvable by some was that in those days, to make even a tiny amount, less than a gram of an oligonucleotide was millions of dollars. Say, well, suppose you could create a chemistry that would make drug-like ASOs, and suppose you could actually get them into cells, but then they would be so costly you could never use them. All of that turns out to have been appropriately skeptical, but all of it yielded to efforts, good science over time. And Interestingly, again, very early on in the development of ASO technology at Ionis, we had a drug approved, vitravine, and it was injected directly in the eye to treat an infection in the eye that AIDS patients got, and that's called CMV retinitis. Then the hard work began and the real misery began. And in fact, the other companies that began at the same time as we did all failed or went off and did something else. And for reasons we don't need to get into, there was actually very little work that really helped that was done by academic scientists. And so for you know a couple of decades there, Ionis was a pretty lonely little company. But the technology has advanced and continues to advance even today, and that's very exciting. And after about 25 years and perhaps maybe $3 billion, the technology was validated. So, you know, it's quite a bargain, really. And we are excited about today for the reasons we were excited about to begin with. We can use the rules to design our drugs. And so drug discovery is much more efficient. Within a chemical class of ASOs, the drugs are basically the same. They just differ in genetic zip code. And so generally, we can predict how the next ASO within a particular chemical class will behave based on the experience we have with the previous 10. 
they ASOs generally are vastly more specific than, say, small molecules. And ASOs now are fairly broadly applicable. And because RNAs, you know, present in every cell and all the biological systems and so on. So there are very few undruggable targets for us. And if you were to go to one of the reviews that's been written uh, recently, you would find that there are more than 100 different RNA-targeted drugs in clinical development. And those drugs that are in clinical development both reflect the advances that have taken place and that make the drugs behave better and better. And they also demonstrate how those advances then led to broader and broader utility for the technology. So for us, and we'll come back to this a little later, the single most important characteristic of the platform is how efficient it is. And I concluded about four years ago that technology might be efficient enough that we could actually use it to make ASO treatments for an individual patient and we could do it cheaply and rapidly enough that we could perhaps give them away, provide that patient with free treatment for life. I still find that amazing. And of course, it's wonderful. So that's ASOs. Now let's talk about gene therapy. Gene therapy has the plus of being very easy to understand. It's a form of replacement therapy. And the idea is simple. You know, there's a defective gene, let's replace it. And then we'll make our new gene, the one that we replace, produce the protein that's needed. So simple sounding. And it's easy to say, unfortunately, incredibly hard to do incredibly hard to reduce to practice. And the history of the technology demonstrates how challenging it actually is. Gene therapy technology has been the subject of intense efforts for more than four decades. Numerous academic scientists, scores of gene therapy companies, and many, many large pharmaceutical companies have been involved. And given the scale and the number and diversity of organizations and scientists involved, it's very tough to calculate what's actually been spent. But my best guess is that it's taken more than 40 years and more than $40 billion. And I would also say that the history of gene therapy has been very tumultuous, even more tumultuous than the history of monoclonal antibody development or the history of ASO development. And it's been dotted with real fit and some genuine catastrophes in which patients die. So what makes such a simple-sounding concept so hard to make work? Well, to begin with, the gene is an incredibly large chemical when you think about it in terms of drugs. And because of the size and negative charge of a gene, remember that a gene is made up of nucleotide building blocks strung together through negatively charged phosphate groups. So it is both very large and very charged. And so even today, with all the progress, it's not possible to chemically synthesize a big gene. So it has to be made biologically. You make these genes biologically in various kinds of cells. And so once you've made the gene, you have to purify all the gunk away and all the stuff that was in those cells and the medium and so on in order to get you know a pure enough chemical that you can use it. And so that process is highly costly, inefficient, and takes quite a little bit of time. So they're hard to make today still. And then the next problem is, of course, to work, a gene has to get into the cell that you want it to get into. And it's too large and it's too charged. And so an incredible amount of work has gone on in figuring out ways to deliver genes. And it's still very difficult. And the number of types of cells 
a number of organs that will take up a, a big gene is still very limited. And after all that work, the most commonly used approach to deliver a gene is called an AAV vector. And it's an adeno. So what's an AAV vector? It's a it's a part of the genetic information a certain virus has, adenovirus associated virus. And this particular virus has the big plus of having not caused any known diseases in man. So what do you do? Well, you take this big hunk of DNA, which is the human gene that you want to replace, and then you stick it in the middle of an even larger amount of DNA that's viral in nature. In fact, there are multiple genes in the AAV vector. So now you've taken a very large charged molecule and stuck it in a viral particle that's even larger and more complex. And then you use the system that the virus has evolved, and that system uses certain viral proteins, like the COVID virus uses the spike protein, to get into cells. And there are just a few cells that it will enter. The other big problem, of course, is that a gene in an AAV vector is seen as foreign. And it's seen as very dangerous hunks of DNA that the body doesn't want. And so the administration of a gene in an AAV vector stimulates a very robust immune response. And that means then we have to use immunosuppressant treatments to prevent the very severe immune response that we might get. Typically, steroids are used and they have many, many side effects, and including, of course, suppressing the immune system and potentially allowing infections to happen. Another theoretical advantage of the AAV vector gene delivery system is that it is thought that AAV is not efficient in inserting itself into the patient's DNA. So why is that an advantage? Well, the, the problem is that it is not possible today to direct a large piece of DNA, the AAV vector and the replacement gene, to a specific site in the patient's genome. And we really don't know yet what the ideal sites for insertion of a piece of foreign DNA are. And of course, our drug and the AAV vector delivery system are represent the drug. So that makes it very difficult. And you can easily imagine that if the DNA that makes up our drug were to insert in the middle of a gene that was making a protein that is vital for survival or health, that that would disrupt the function of that protein. And that could be very, very toxic. If you imagine that, you'd be correct. That certainly could happen. But it's much more complex than even, even that, because uh, there are many critical areas in the genome that regulate all sorts of different functions. And we don't have a full catalog of all those sites. We don't know what would happen if we put a gene in each of those sites. So there's a lot of very basic research left to do before we can run the risk of having a piece of foreign DNA, like our drug, insert into the patient's genome. And so why do I say theoretical advantage? Because it's nearly impossible to prove a negative hypothesis, such as the AAV vector never integrates into a host genome. And because there are reports that the AAV vector can, in fact, integrate into animal genomes on occasion. And so I think that remains a theoretical advantage. It certainly is true that it may be a rare event, but it may not be zero. And it certainly is true that at the present time, we would rather not have a gene therapy incorporate itself into the patient's genome. So we've talked a lot about 
the AAV system. What is it? I think that's an important thing to understand if you're contemplating gene therapy. Uh, the AAV system is designed to get the replacement gene into the nucleus alongside the patient's genome, not to insert into the patient's genome or DNA, but to have it in the nucleus alongside that patient's DNA. Now, a set of genes that exists independently of the main genome in a cell is called an episome or plasmid. An episome replicates itself independently of the main genome, and that then creates another potential issue. If the goal of gene therapy is to cure a disease, then you want that episome to be passed down to all the daughter cells when cells age and need to replace themselves by dividing. But since an episome replicates on its own schedule, on its own terms, sometimes one of the daughter cells doesn't get the episome while the other one does. This means that as cells divide into daughter cells, and that happens a lot in most organs, then one can lose the effect of the replacement gene over time. And if that were to happen, of course, then you'd have to retreat that patient, and certainly not a cure if you have to retreat. And as I said, cells in most organs in your body are constantly dividing and replacing themselves with newer, you know, more able cells. And the organ that arguably has the slowest turnover of cells, the fewest times that parent cell divides and produces daughter cells is the brain, central nervous system. And so that's a place where gene therapy has some potential advantages if indeed the replacement gene becomes an episomal piece of DNA in that patient's nucleus. So theoretical advantage, certainly a very important concept and one that I think a person who's taking gene therapy should understand. So today, then gene therapy can be used to treat some genetic diseases caused by loss of function of a single gene. And tragically, there are many patients with ultra rare diseases that have mutations that mean they can't make even a tiny amount of the needed protein. Remember, that's called a null mutation. So gene therapy could be incredibly important for these patients. And as I said, there are many of them that express ultra-rare diseases. But even today, the challenges are formidable and the cost may be prohibitive to think of gene therapy for a single patient only. Now, I want to focus on a word, and the word is cure for just a minute. As I discussed gene therapy, I use the word cure for the first time in any of these podcasts. Cure is a widely used word that I think is often misused and misunderstood. In the context of drug treatment, Cure means that one course of treatment with the drug permanently reverses the patient from a disease phenotype to a different, healthier phenotype. Single application, disease is gone. In the vast majority of cases, the goal of drug therapy is not cure. A very good example is the treatment of patients who have too much bad cholesterol or LDL cholesterol. We know that LDL cholesterol, let's say, 200 is associated with cardiovascular disease. We know that. And we know that we can lower LDL-C readily with drugs like statins. And not only can we do that, we can normalize LDL-C so that that person no longer has an increased risk of cardiovascular disease compared to others. But if your doctor asks you to take Lipitor, let's say, to lower your LDL, you have to take it every day. So a patient who 
is taking Lipitor for the rest of his life, certainly isn't cured in the way that cure is used because he has to take the drug every day of his life. But in fact, he's healthier throughout the rest of his life, has been protected from cardiovascular disease. So what do you call that? I call that a very good piece of news, but it's not cure in the context that it's often used. There are only really two major exceptions to the rule that drugs don't cure a patient, and they are infectious diseases and cancer. In the case of infectious diseases, we use anti-infective drugs to work alongside your immune system to eradicate every single infectious organism. And we've gotten very, very good at it. We're what, the second or third generation that really doesn't have to worry much about the infectious diseases that used to kill millions of people every year. Two out of five children born died in childhood because of infectious diseases for centuries. No longer the case. That's incredible. The other exception is cancer. And some patients with cancer have very rapidly dividing cells. Not all cancers are rapidly dividing, but for the sake of our conversation, let's just say cancer cells divide in an uncontrolled way. And as they divide, they invade other tissues, they take over other cells, they destroy. And so you can think of them as sociopathic cells. They no longer work collaboratively with the cells in your body to prolong your life. They work hostily to expand their hold on, on life at your expense. And so once again, with cancer, our goal is actually to eradicate all the cancer cells. And we know that unless the combination of anti-cancer drugs and the immune system eradicates every single cell, eventually that cancer will grow and produce problems. And thanks to the efforts in cancer, of course, there are now many uh, cancers that can be cured. Of course, there are many others that still remain to be managed in an effective way. And now I want to finish with, I think, a concept that I mentioned earlier that I think is so important for everyone involved in taking a drug or giving a drug to somebody needs to understand. And you remember I said that there is no free ride with any drug. And I'll say it again. There is no free ride with any drug. Every drug has potential liabilities. And sometimes those liabilities manifest themselves as serious adverse events. That statement, that is, there's no free ride with any drug, is true. Whether the chemical being used uh, for therapeutic purposes is natural, meaning that it occurs in nature, or is made by another human being in a laboratory. <laughs> Curie, curare, belladonna, ergotamine, and thousands of other natural products have been used throughout history as poisons, and they were effective. So, being natural doesn't really mean anything to a pharmacologist. That statement is also true, no matter how long a drug has been around. Aspirin was a miracle drug when it was first introduced in the late 1800s, and it's been used, been a useful drug and commonly used by millions of patients every single day since then. But if it's not taken as directed, it can be lethal, and many, many patients have died of aspirin overdose. And even if it is used, as directed, aspirin can be very dangerous for some patients. For example, today we know that every dose of aspirin may cause a little bit of GI bleeding. No big deal for most patients, but potentially lethal effects in patients who have ulcer disease or in patients taking blood thinners. Recall uh, that I said a patient with the disease 
often reacts differently to a drug compared to a healthy person or compared to a, a patient who has a different kind of disease. Important statements. The statement that there is no free ride with drugs is true no matter what type of drug it is. The statement is also true no matter how simple the drug may sound. After three decades of basic research, to many biological scientists, ASO technology seems very simple. And that has led some biological scientists in academia to try to create an ASO for an ultra-rare patient themselves. Would I recommend that a patient take this approach? Absolutely not. To me, that's like getting on an airplane, knowing that the, the maintenance team and the pilots have transportation experience. That is, some were stewards on trains, others drove trucks, but none of them had ever seen an airplane before. You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't recommend it. So that's about as strong a no as I can possibly give you. No, I think that's a bad idea. The statement is also true for gene therapy as well. I mean, gene therapy sounds so simple, but I hope I've explained to you adequately that it is anything but simple. So I guess then I'll conclude with this, again, really simple statement. If you have a disease and there's a drug that might produce benefit, of course, you should take it. And of course you do. But what I hope also is that today you understand how complex that drug actually is in a better way than you did before you listened to these podcasts. And you will endeavor to understand the potential risks as well as the potential benefits very well before you make a decision to be treated with a particular medicine. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.